If you were like for the very, very first time sitting down without any knowledge of the Bible and you were going to read the Old Testament, and let's say you were like a really good reader. Yeah, I have to preface that like, let's say, let's imagine as if you were a really good reader because I have to pretend that I'm a really good reader. Uh, I, I can read and I can read with like really great comprehension but when I do that, it's so slow. I mean, I, if I read paying attention, I could tell you like where on pages certain thoughts are. It's just the way my weird brain stores things. But it just takes forever. But yet I watch my daughter and the way that she reads, and she just like, you know, and she's consuming it, and she's retaining it, and it's like the comprehension is super high. So let's just pretend that we're all like super proficient and fast readers to where we can get the whole story as if we're like kind of viewing it on a screen. Um, it's amazing how the people that didn't have TVs and, and smartphones and all of that, when you read stuff that was written by people before those days, it's as if they had this depth. So we're reading the Old Testament for the very first time. We're taking it all in. And then we get to the end of it straight through. We get to the book of Malachi and the very last couple of verses of the very last chapter says this. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children of the fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse, and then, boom, there's the end of the Old Testament. If you were reading it as like a book, and you got to that kind of an ending, you'd be like, that's it? I still have so many questions. Is that all? Is that the end of the story? Like, come on, there's got to be more than that. If you finished it, you realize right away, even the way that the Old Testament ends, you read and you realize that it's an incomplete story. That they've just set you up as a full-on cliffhanger and you're waiting for the next season. You know what I mean? It's there. You read through and you start thinking back like, man, there's a lot of that did, didn't really get a lot of explanation. Like there's that whole priesthood thing. A major chunk of the Old Testament is all wrapped up around the concept of the priesthood, the Levitical order. What is that? What about all the ceremonies and all the cleansing? What is that? There wasn't much, it, like there's like the command to do it, but there's not a whole lot of ex explanation. Like what's the deal with all of this? And then on top of that, not just the, the ceremonies and the cleansing and all that, but then there's the sacrifices. Whoa. So many sacrifices. And they're given by God with, again, like, do this. But there's not a whole lot of explanation. And then, you think about it, all those animals, all the, that blood, and all for what? And then there's the promises and prophecies of the Old Testament. And the, like even this one, okay? There's, that's a prophecy right there. And it's left like without any explanation of how that got fulfilled or how it's going to get fulfilled. The promises all left unfilled, unfulfilled. And so you look at that and you go, that can't be all to the story. 
there's still so many unanswered questions. Now, with the prophets, uh, the prophets, they began to prophesy around 931 BC. And the ministry of the prophets, they continued to around um, shortly after the walls of Jerusalem were rebuilt in, uh, in 400 BC. And after that, the walls of Jerusalem being rebuilt around 400 BC, after that, you know what happened? Silence. So here you got this cliffhanger of a story, obviously like unfinished, with all of this stuff that's left unexplained, priesthood, ceremonies, sacrifices, prophecies and promises, and it's like, okay, now what? And what do you get? Silence. Silence for the span of nearly 400 years. Silence to a clearly unfinished book. And then all of a sudden, the greatest prophet who ever lived bursts out on the scene, coming out of the wilderness with camel's hair for his clothes, eating locusts. This weird guy preaching a message of public repentance and baptism, getting right with God. And where is he preaching this message? What is he connecting this message to? Is he connecting it to the priesthood? No, he's out in the desert. Is he connecting it to the temple? No, he's out in the desert. In fact, even to the point to where Jesus had to ask the religious leaders, what did you go out into the desert to see? What did you go out to see? Like, what was it that drew you? Like, God was moving in the hearts of people, and they were getting right with God apart from this whole religious system. What's that all about? Well, he said it clearly, that he was a voice in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Messiah, and ultimately pointing to the Messiah. And so here in John chapter 1, we pick up our study in verse 29. It says, the next day. Because remember, the day before was when the religious leaders came to him saying, uh, who are you? And he straight out, it says, he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. Well, are you Elijah? No, uh, I am not him. Are you that prophet? No. Well, then why are you baptizing? Like, our prophets didn't do that. Like, we don't do that. What are you doing this for? Who are you? What do you say of yourself? Well, I'm the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight way for the coming of the Lord. And then from that, like, I, I baptize with water. And then after that, and I am not worthy to unloose the sandals of the one who's standing here in your midst, who is greater than me, and you don't even know him. He's right here in your midst, and you're not even aware of it. That was the day before. Now, the next day, the very next day, John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. If you were out there on the street, and somebody looked at you, and they go, Oh, look at the Lamb. And they were talking about you, would be like, what are you saying? Because it's kind of a weird thing to say about somebody. Now, I could almost imagine, like, my granny 
saying, oh, you wee lamb. Oh, you wee lamb. Because I, I always, that's, that's the sound that comes to my mind when I think of a granny. Because my, my granny, she's Irish, and she has that accent and stuff. But I could almost imagine, like, some, some grandmotherly figure calling a child, like, a, a, a little lamb. Oh, you little, precious little lamb. And you think of it like, oh, sweet and cuddly and all that. But if you were a Jew, you're not thinking of a lamb as sweet and cuddly. You're thinking of a creature that's going to spill its blood. You might think, okay, I'm either going to eat this thing or I'm going to burn this thing as a sacrifice. A lamb had a totally different image in, in the Jewish mind. So if you're going to understand this, you got to think of it from the Hebrew mindset. No other prophet prophesied more clearly than John the Baptist when he said this statement here, behold the Lamb of God. Because others had tried to be clear. They, they had tried, even, even though they didn't fully make sense of what they were prophesying of, they tried to be clear. They tried to describe what, they, what was coming. And some of them were pretty clear. Like you think of Isaiah 53, or 52 and 53, where it talks about like his face like marred beyond the, the recognition of him being a man. You know, when it says that he carried our griefs and our sorrows, and we considered him smitten, um, you know, stricken by God and afflicted. And you read that and you go, it's kind of clear, but that's only clear because we have some understanding. You think of the Ethiopian eunuch where Philip came to him in the book of Acts, and he was reading that passage that now we look at and go, wow, it's so clear. He was reading that, and Philip said, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone explain it to me? And then he began to explain to him about Jesus, and that was when that Ethiopian eunuch was baptized. So you remember that, like, even now, some of the clearest things, they're clear because people have explained them. But John the Baptist had the clearest prophecy. And the reason why is because others tried to describe what it was that God had showed them. John didn't have to describe what God had showed him. He just had to point to him. That's what God shows me. This one. This is the Lamb of God. Like, that is so clear. Like, okay, tell me about the Lamb. That one right there. Right here. This one. So clear. So specific, behold the lamb of God. But now why are you calling him a lamb, John? Again, to appreciate that, you have to go back to the Old Testament. Because that's where we learn, especially like the book of Leviticus. That's where you get so much about these Jewish offerings and sacrifices. The Jews were taught to offer sacrifice for just about every aspect of their life. There were burnt offerings and grain offerings and sin offerings and guilt offerings and wave offerings and thank offerings and drink offerings. There were these offerings of, you know, like even when you're, when you're doing good, you offer an offering. There was offerings and sacrifices for everything. All of the offerings were associated with sacrifices. And in doing that, they would sacrifice bulls, cows, sometimes calves, Oxen, rams, goats, sheep, turtle doves. And when an animal was sacrificed, there's a lot of blood that was shed. And all of that blood, all of that blood that was shed, and yet here you got this book, and it's like, what's that all mean? 
The Bible tells us that, you know, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. Often those sacrifices were told that there would be atonement, which would mean a covering. But the book of Hebrews kind of brings out like some definition of what does all that mean? What was it for? In Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 4, it says, The law, having a shadow of the good things to come and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offered continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have, or for then would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshiper, once purified, would have no need or have no more consciousness of sin. But those sacrifices, in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. For look at, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. So there's these sacrifices, and they would be offered year after year, continually. And the reason that you had to have another sacrifice after the one you just made was because the one you just made never cleansed you. It didn't make you pure. It didn't make you perfect. It didn't bring the full healing that you hoped it would. It was just a constant reminder of what brought me to this point, my guilt. And yet I'm going to be right back here again. And I'm going to be right back here again, over and over and over again. Another animal and another animal and more blood and more blood. But it never would truly cleanse. It would only cover. And all of that, the author of Hebrews tells us it was a shadow. You know, when there's, when there's a shadow, the shadow speaks of you know, light that's being shined, but there's the substance that's casting the shadow. And all of those Old Testament sacrifices, what's all that about when you read the cliffhanger of the Old Testament? You get to the New Testament, you realize, oh, it's a shadow that's pointing me to substance. And what is the substance? All of these sacrifices, where did they get the worshiper? Was there advancement? Was there cleansing? Did they bring anyone to where God wanted them to be? Well, no. If they could make the worshiper perfect, then they would have stopped. Like, I'm sure some of you have had experience with credit cards, and you, you, you get a little debt, you get a balance on the credit card. Some of you are like, yeah, little? That's not the appropriate word. Um, some, you get these big balances. I get offended when people offer me credit cards. You know, you go in, and you go to Ross, and you're, like, you're buying a pair of shoes or something. And they're like, would you like to open the Ross credit card? <laughs> you're like, okay, let me get, like, you're offering me an opportunity to dig a hole for myself, of which, like, how many people are stressed out over their credit card debts over a pair of shoes? Come on, like, I don't want to be in debt, and you're offering me a way to get deeper into it. But you know, if you've ever been in debt, and I'm speaking, like, very generally, because a lot of you are like, man, I got debt, you know, because gas and food just keep getting more and more expensive. And anyway. You get all that. Once you clear your balance, you don't keep paying that credit card company. You're like, okay, I've paid you off. I owe you nothing. You don't get any more money from me. But if you just pay the minimum, you're never actually even paying your balance. You get to a place where you're just paying the interest. 
And in a way, like all of those Old Testament sacrifices, they never, you never cleared the balance sheet. You were hardly, hardly even paying the interest. All it was was just this repeated system over and over again. The blood of animals never, ever touched the principle of our debt. Just a reminder of the sin debt that we owed. And it was not possible that they could take away sins. I mean, here's one reason why it's not possible. It was not the animals that disobeyed God. Animals didn't, the animals didn't go out and rebel against the Lord. It was man. And mankind is a race, the human race, all the way back from, Anna, from Adam. An animal can't obey God with a human will. And then in complete obedience to the will of God, an animal can never overcome what, An what Adam could not. Why wasn't the blood of bulls and goats sufficient to purchase our souls back from God? Because it wasn't a bull or a goat that sinned against God. Another reason why the blood of bulls and goats wasn't sufficient to purchase our souls back to God, it's because... You are worth more to God than all the bulls and goats that have ever lived on this planet. Sure, beautiful creation. He looked at what he made and behold, it was good. But he didn't say, let us make bulls and goats in our image. You are created in the image of God. One of the great lies of Satan that he propagates among people. And even now, it's sadly becoming more and more accepted within the church is to have an extremely low view on human life. Making it out like, what is my life? My life is just this like juice box of pleasure and I just like enjoy it till it's gone. Like what a sad, small view of life to just like, Indulge in pleasure till you die. That's emptiness. On top of that, you know the first book of the Bible, the book called Genesis? You know what the first word of Genesis is? Genes, genetics. You know that genetics is super important to God? Because families are super important to God? Because like your lineage, why is there so many genealogies in the Bible? Because family is so precious to God. He sees us as a race, uh, you know, the human race. Like angels are a host. They are all individual, only individual. But we are standing on the shoulders of those that go before us. And we are carving out a society for those that are ahead of us. And every single step of the way is so precious to God. Your children's children, if God should tarry, are precious to God. And the wicked one wants you to think that the future doesn't matter and the past doesn't matter. All that matters is right now. And so let's promote ideas that will terminate the next generation. Let's promote ideas that will make it impossible for there to be a next generation. Let's do things that will thwart the furthering of genetics and families and people, let's stop it all now and just only live for ourselves. That's the devil's plan from day one. That's destroying everything about you is radical selfishness. 
But God sees us like the whole race is precious. There's not like a part of the race that he likes and another part that he hates. The part that's made in his image is what he loves. And from that, we need to have a high view on human life. Each and every one as so precious in the eyes of God. In a sense, there's no worthless human beings. There's no common human being. I love, I love this statement by C.S. Lewis. He says, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nations, cultures, arts, civilizations, these are mortal. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Whoo, that's heavy stuff right there. The high value on human life that even as C.S. Lewis would say, the holiest object that will come into your senses today is the person next to you. How precious is that? All of mankind created in the image of God and Jesus loves us all so much that he would take our sins upon himself and die on the cross, a sinner's death, to pay the penalty for our sins. To where your redemption is not in the blood of bulls and goats. It's not in gold or jewels or precious things that you've been redeemed by the, the, the former conversations of your fathers. As Peter says in 1 Peter. Animals are cute. I like animals. They're fun to watch. They're soft. I like how my dog tries to give me hugs until he steps on me and scratches me. But still, like, he's a silly dog, and I like him. Animals are beautiful. But Jesus didn't die for them. And the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus is the price tag that God puts on each and every one of you. The other day, Hannah sent me down to Safeway, and she's like, get some sour cream. I'm like, okay. So I go to get sour cream, and I was shocked that all the sour cream had a big orange sticker on it that said 50% off. I got really scared. I'm like, why is sour cream half off? Is that, like, I don't care how much the savings are. It's not worth a stomach flu. You know what I mean? Like, I could say, like, it could be free, and I could be, like, a week in the, the bathroom vomiting, and it's like, it wasn't worth it. It wasn't worth the savings. It cost me way more. I would rather spend more for sour cream than I'm sure of. But here's the thing about people. I, I did, by the way, buy discounted sour cream. But there is not a man, woman, or child that is purchased at a discount. No one is purchased at a discount. Like every single person, every single one, the price is full price. And the blood of Jesus Christ is that price tag. 
I have this friend, I went to Bible college with him. And after he graduated, he ended up getting married. And then he moved him and his wife to an extremely hostile Islamic nation. And because him and his wife were like Mexican, they really looked like the people from this Middle Eastern country. And so they just kind of came in and just acted really stupid. They didn't know the language or anything, but they came in totally dressed like the people that were there and they got a place to stay. They ended up having their kids there, slowly learning the language and everybody just assumed, oh yeah, these are our, our, our Muslim brothers. Even at times where like they're on the, like he has to take a boat to get in between some of the, the villages. And there's times where he'll be on the boat and these Islamic militants will hand him machine guns and be like, you guard that side of the boat, brother. He's like, okay. <laughs> but he's been doing a great job. He's been out there ministering. And I, like, I, I have to be really cautious. I mean, he's, he's so cautious. He never, tells me, he never says publicly where it's at. Like it's, it's never announced his name because, you know, if, if the cover got out, like his whole family, he's raised his kids there, like they would all be at risk. Um, but he, when I was in Bible college with him, we would pray and he used to always pray, Lord, like I'm just me. I'm just me. Like I know where I came from. Like I'm just me. And I might not be worth much, but... Can you just take me and, and spend my life for your glory? And then one time, there, it was a, like a pretty radical night. I think it was after a, a Sunday night chapel service. And the, the reality of Christ's assessment of his life, because, you know, like John the Baptist, right? John's just like, I'm just a voice. And that's, that's a good way to view yourself, you know? Have a very realistic, low view of yourself. Let another praise you and not you yourself. It's a terrible thing to be out just blowing your own horn and like trying to solicit praise. Like that's terrible. It's not hallelujah me, it's hallelujah him, right? Hallelujah, right? So on the one hand to have that low view, but remember John the Baptist, like I'm just a voice and yet Jesus is like, there's no greater prophet. When you step back to think of the price tag that's on your head, nothing less than the precious blood of Christ, nothing less than a worth that is like flowing out of the greatest mystery of human thought. I remember when he began to pray different. And he prayed, Lord, I know that I'm just me, but in your eyes, in your eyes, you say I'm worth the blood of Jesus. So will you just take me and spend me for your glory? I just want to emphasize that like you're so precious to God. And the blood of bulls and goats, it could never take away your sin. I'm sorry, that was, that was the other slide, right? The blood and bulls and goats could never take away your sin. But here comes Jesus on the scene, and John the Baptist points at him and says, Behold the Lamb of God. He doesn't say who covers our sin. Behold the Lamb of God 
He takes away our sin. He takes away the sin of the world. And from that, in verse 30 to 34, this is he, this is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness saying, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. There were people that were with John the day before, too. On the day when, as we saw last week, that he told the Jewish leaders who were questioning him, there in verse 26 and 27, John answered them saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you don't even know. It is he who coming after me is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. And now John gets to point to him. He gets to bear witness to the light. He's the one. That's the Lamb of God. Now, John knew who Jesus was as far as like, hi, that's, this is Jesus from Nazareth. Like, I know who this guy is. But he didn't know like who Jesus was until this happened. He just knew that there was something special about Jesus because, you know, um, Mary and Elizabeth, remember? Cousins. So there was family connection that was there. But he's out there baptizing because he knows the Messiah is coming. And the Lord said, hey, it's the one whom you see the Spirit of God descend upon. And then, you know, John knew. But John gets to point and bear witness so specifically to the light, seeing and testifying in the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And from there in verse 35, Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples. And looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? And they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, Teacher, where are you staying? <laughs> Okay, this is the one that John's been speaking about. This is the one who he was preparing the way for. This is the one who he had said, he's greater than I am. I'm not even worthy to lose his slipper. And he's coming. The kingdom of God is at hand, is what John had been preaching. And now from this, here's some of John's disciples, specifically Andrew and John. And uh, as they're there, they hear him. When he shouts out, behold, the Lamb of God. This is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I've been telling you about. This is the one that's so much greater than I. And the next day, the next day, John, Jesus comes back. And John, John points to him once again. Behold, the Lamb of God. This is the hope of Israel. 
This is the savior of the world. At that point, what would you do? First of all, like, it doesn't matter what you were doing. Once you realize that the one that John had been talking about is on the scene, what you going to do? Or think about the Jewish community, like the, all of the Jews. The entire Old Testament had been pointing to Jesus. All the way from, the, like from Genesis 3.15 and through all the prophets, that, that scarlet thread of redemption, all the way through, pointing to Jesus, the law, the prophets, it's all pointing to him. And now finally the one that it's all pointing to is on the scene. What are you going to do? The Jewish leaders, they had the same like moment of decision that these two disciples had of John the Baptist. What are we going to do? Like John the Baptist's disciples could have been like, oh, that's cool. That's the one you've been talking about? Hey, man, nice to see you. I'm going to hang out with you, John. I like this thing better. Like, I know that's like the latest and greatest, but we like the old school, you know? Let's hang out with the old ways. Uh, we don't want to have any of that new stuff. What about you? Ways you've been living your life maybe for a long time. And all of a sudden you finally realize like, wow, this is the one that, that all the Bible has been pointing to. This is the one that like that longing in my heart is all about. What are you going to do? Well, Andrew and John, they begin to follow Jesus. Because, I mean, they're at least a little bit curious. So they begin to follow him. But I can imagine they're following him from a little bit of a distance. Because I don't know if you've ever, like, suddenly seen, like, a really famous person. And maybe you, you, meet, you get to meet somebody that's, like, really important. I don't know if you've ever gotten, like, that, I don't know what you would call it. Would you call it, like, starstruck? Where you just get, like, all, and then you say something stupid. They're like, what's up, man? Dumb things. Uh. Here they are, they're excited, but they're following. They're following from a distance. And in verse 38, Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what you seeking? What do you seek? <laughs> okay, what a moment. Like the most important figure of all of Jewish history. The most important figure of all the Bible. The one that the entirety of John the Baptist's ministry was all for. And now he's asking me a question. <laughs> what am I going to say? <laughs> you could ask some deep theological thing and try to sound important. Or you could, you know, like, what are you going to say? And then I don't know if they regretted what they said. It seems a little weird. But at the same time, once we look at it a little bit, Whatever it was, it turned out to be so deep and so beautiful. The question that Jesus asks is, what are you seeking? What are you seeking? And that's a question that I want us to consider this morning as well. And it's a question that how you answer your entire life and all of it, eternity depends upon.
Because there's a lot of things in life that could be the object of your pursuit today. What are you seeking? Well, you know, I could be, you know, you could say you're seeking this thing or that thing. But the answer that the disciples give, they said to him, Rabbi, which is to be interpreted master, where do you dwell? There was a great king of Israel, David, the shepherd king. And from David's mouth proceeded these words. Psalm 27, verse 4. He says, one thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek. And what was David seeking after? That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. See, David knew that like no matter what was going on in his life, being pursued by Saul, whatever it was, that to be dwelling in the presence of God and beholding the beauty of God, that could bring the change of heart and mind and attitude that would change the way that he reacted to every other thing around him. There was one thing in David's life that he was desiring and that he was seeking after. And what that was is he just wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And that's because he had tasted the goodness of God. He wanted to dwell where God dwells. There was another guy named Asaph. Asaph wrote in Psalm 84, verse 10, For a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. He's like, Lord, like, even if I have the very lowest job at your house, just to be where you are one day with you is better than a thousand anything else. I just want to be where you are, Lord. I want, to, I want to know where your house is, and I want to live there. I want to work there. And when Psalm 34, 8 says, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who trusts in him. David and Asaph, those are a couple guys that, that they had tasted. They had experienced the goodness of God. And their lives had been changed because of that. But their response is their response. And their response does you no good. Except for like looking at a fish in an aquarium. What do you seek? What's the pursuit of your life? What is it that like defines you and drives you? What are you looking for? I mean, all of us realize that deep down there's something that's kind of missing. There's this inner searching. And, and it's like ultimately towards like purpose or meaning, a reason for living. We all desire these things. We search for them in life. And yet here's Jesus asking this question like, what are you seeking? Like, why am I even seeking? What's my problem? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure you've gotten people all upset with you. You know, like maybe you, you did a, a, a wrong like turn or something while you're driving and you get something so mad at you and then they pull up next to you at like the stoplight. They're like, what's your problem? You know, or you get somebody upset with you at work and they're like, what's your problem? Well, the next time somebody gets all upset with you like that and they roll down their window, they're like, man, what's your problem? Give them this answer. 
my problem is sin, man. Just see how they react to that. Sin is my problem. And that's the reality. This morning, what's my problem? And what, what's even like the root of it, the emptiness inside? Well, that's sin. Sin is the problem. Your emptiness is your need for a relationship with God. Romans 3.10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. To be righteous means to be in good or innocent standing or to have a right standing relationship with God. The Bible tells us that there's not a person on this earth who is able to stand righteously before God on his own merit, on his own deserving. And that's why the Bible tells us in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, how we deal with that issue, that's across the board. Like, that's weird, right? Because we come to the reality of our sin, and often what we do is, is that, like, We feel the guilt of sin, and then we try to make sense of the guilt. And psychiatry will tell you that, like, guilt is one of the biggest things that's plaguing people across the board. So what do we do with our guilt? Well, we either try to silence it with medication, or we try to make it like, I'm only feeling guilty because you're putting weird pressures on me. It's you that's the problem, not me. And again, we just go on and perpetuate the same insanity without owning it and then taking it to the true solution. We're unable to stand right before God because on our own merit, we are sinners. And we're unable to fix ourselves. And we're unable to cleanse ourselves. And we're unable to heal ourselves. And the rejection and the shamefulness that that we have with us, well, we deserve it because of our deeds. But Jesus asks, what do you seek? And I'll tell you, like, whatever your pursuit is, like, today, your pursuit might be something as silly as, like, a new coffee maker that costs way too much. You know, your pursuit might be something like, you know, if only I could have that one thing, or, like, a new car, or a new job, or a new, a new tattoo, or, or whatever it is, and you think, like, you get so wrapped up in it. I don't know if you ever get like that, where there's, like, a purchase that you want to make, and then your mind gets all, like, you're on it. Like, it's, it's all over there. But when you start thinking about that, like, what am I seeking, though? What is, what's the root of this seeking? Like, why is it that I even have this sense of longing that there's, like, a complete discontentedness within me? Where's the root at? And Jesus asked, what do you seek? And you can respond to that a bunch of ways. You can either respond like, I don't know what I'm seeking, and I don't care what I'm seeking. I'm just going to fill myself with whatever is going to numb the pain until I die. And that's, honestly, that's kind of like the way of the world right now. Just keep spending because, well, all you are to the world system is a consumer. And in fact, now you're even more than a consumer, or you're even less than a consumer. You're actually the product. That's why the algorithms, they study you, and they market directly to you because you are the crop, and it's a sad day that we live in. But why are you seeking? You could be 
like the sons of Zebedee. I'm seeking God, but I'm seeking him to do whatever I want him to do for me. Like Mark 10, 35 says, then James and John, the sons of Zebedee came to him saying, teacher, we want for you to do for us whatever we ask. Let me tell you, that is not a spiritual approach to God. That is selfish. That is, um, that is not, that is not God-centered. That is just trying to use the Holy One to supplement your own um, greed. And if you have a spiritual movement that's based on that attitude, uh, I'm so spiritual because I, I want God to do whatever I want him to do. Like, you're thinking poorly. Or there's another way to respond. It's, what are you seeking? Well, God, I, I want to know you. I want to know what you want me to do. Because you're God, and you know best. And so I'm going to trust in your wisdom, and I'm going to submit my life to you. What are you seeking? It all depends on what you seek. Matthew 6, 31 through 33 says, Therefore, take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what, where, what, with what shall we be clothed? For all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you have need of all these things. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Lord, I, I want to see your kingdom. Lord, I want to know where you live. And I don't just want to know where you live. Like, I want to see if I can settle down there. And look at Jesus' response to them saying, where do you live? Where do you stay? And he said to them in verse 39, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. That was about the 10th hour. Come and see. To their question, he gives an invitation. Come and see. And they spent one day with Jesus. One day. And after that one day, their lives were never the same. And may it be that we too will never be the same because we taste and we see that the Lord is good. That we realize the danger that we're in and that our pursuits, whatever it may be, suddenly, like I said, like you could be pursuing, you could be pursuing all of these little things, but suddenly some danger comes into your life. You find yourself out in the ocean without a boat, and suddenly, like, it doesn't matter if you're seeking a job promotion. You just need to get rescued. Like, everything else goes away. You realize there's only one thing that you need. And, and if you realize that you're a sinner, and that's the root of all of your problems, you're realizing that you need a savior. You need the one that can heal you. That you can't save yourself, fix yourself, or heal yourself. You need God. And when you realize that and you finally come to the realization like, man, I am broken. What am I seeking? I'm seeking Jesus to be exactly who he's promised to be. What a beautiful invitation to that, that realization. And the invitation is, come, come and see. Come and taste. Taste and see that the Lord is good.
And so just in closing, I want to challenge you today. Like, you might be at a place where you're like, things are disjointed in my life. Things are broken. They're not in order. I am missing the mark. You can't heal yourself. You can't save yourself. You can't even fix yourself. What do you seek? Today, I want to encourage you to like pause whatever the busyness is. You know, like set aside the social media and all of the algorithms that are like targeting you. Because you know they target you, right? Like all of the ads and all of the news articles and everything, they're targeting you to make you like, I'm going to go fix things as you just become like robotically part of the system. Pause all that. Set it aside. And spend a day with Jesus. And watch the way that your soul revives. Watch the way that like the, the, the pain finally begins to like at least find the hope to bring healing. Pause it all and set aside the time to sit with him. And know that like one day in his court is better than a thousand of anything else. That one day with Jesus can bring the transformation. And that you're going to be like, Lord, I don't just want to know where you live. I want to know, like, you got a guest room there for me? Because I want to abide in your courts all the days of my life. I don't ever want to go back out there and be part of that system again. Like, this is where it makes sense to be here where you are. What do you seek? And if the answer of your heart is like, I, I want to know where you live, Lord. What a beautiful response and an invitation for you today. Come and see. 